Welcome to Digital Gardening, the podcast about cultivating digital literacy in higher education. I'm your co-host, Paul Cook, and I'm here with my co-host, Adam Maxwell. Thanks, Paul. Uh, if you've heard our early ep- earlier episodes, you know that we created this podcast as a project of the Digital Gardener Initiative at IU, which is not about gardening. So if you're listening and you're hoping to get some gardening tips, this is not the place for you. We are a podcast about digital literacy, and, and the Digital Gardener Initiative is about uh, digital literacy, broadly defined, uh, hence the gardening metaphor. Just as a garden can house a diverse variety of plants, the Digital Gardener Initiative is meant to be inclusive of multiple disciplines and conceptualizations of what's needed in a digital world. Yeah, that's right, Adam. So if you're looking for uh, information about getting your begonias to sprout, um, you've come to the wrong place. But but if you're looking for information about digital literacy, if you want to uh, hear really fascinating interviews with some thought leaders at Indiana University and across higher education, as we will today in this podcast, then stick around because we've got a treat for uh, for you. As educators, we need to prepare students for the highly interconnected, complex digital world in which we live. And that means helping students develop lots of skills that we think are part of this larger garden. From media literacy and news literacy to basic computer skills, data literacy, visual communication skills, and many other skills and competencies. Which is what brings us to our discussion with our two very distinguished guests today. Back in October 2021, we launched the Digital Gardener Initiative at our inaugural Digital Gardener Summit. And Carolyn Gentle Genity and Jay Gladden were there uh, to uh, kick us off at the summit. Carolyn is an assistant vice president for university academic policy and director of the university transfer office at IU. She's also a professor in the School of Social Work. Jay's associate vice president for learning technologies at Indiana University. And before that role, he served as associate vice chancellor of undergraduate education at IUPUI. He's also a professor in the tourism of tourism event and sport management at IUPUI. Carolyn Jay, thank you so much and welcome to uh, the Digital Gardening Podcast. Thank you so much for having us. It's a pleasure to engage in this conversation with the Digital Gardener, as well as uh, online in higher ed. Carolyn said it well. Really excited to be here to talk with you today. So as we said, this is a podcast about digital literacy in higher education, but it's important to start with the broader context that we are in. So given all the conversations going on about the lack of faith in institutions, Uh, including and perhaps even especially knowledge institutions like the university. Uh, My first question has to do with challenges. What what do you see as being some of the biggest challenges facing universities today, right now, um, in terms of how they relate to the societies that they serve? I can jump in real quickly. Um, You know, I think the the National polling is really clear that confidence in higher education has declined dramatically uh, over the past decade to, to, to 15, 20 years. Um, and, and more than ever, the question is being asked, what's the value of a college degree? And, th- and that's where we get these conversations related to what are the, the things that students really need to be able to do? And, and for those of us in higher education that, that um, you know, worry about that, that 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 concern uh, and know that we're helping students be ready for life after college. Um, it, it's a really important conversation to track and 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 following some of those uh, really significant, interesting conversations held both within higher ed and outside higher ed as, as to what's going to be important, particularly as we look toward this future and and the adaptability and flexibility uh, that that our that our students are going to need. It it's both daunting and exciting at the same time. 
I, I think you're absolutely right, Jay. And, and if I could add to, to the conversation, I was reading an article in Inside Higher Ed maybe about four weeks ago, and they were reporting on a quick study or a poll that they did to look at students and how they viewed higher ed. And they ended up in two buckets, right? One was the career exploration where they want to see all of what they could do and all of what they could be like the army, right? Be all you can be. And then there was this other group where, look, my parents said I need to go to college and I need to go and get an education. Uh, and so the, the article suggested that no matter what, when we are looking at what's happening in higher ed, we must be able to recognize the audience upon which we're working, right? So if we're working for the typical career-driven students, then we need to offer degree programs that meet their need, that are synced with internships, that are synced with industry-related relevance and competences. And then the other, if they're just exploring, then maybe they do want to do that study abroad, and they do want to do all these other things um, that help them define themselves or their own identity. Uh, if I had to then step back and say, what are the challenges that are impacting higher ed, definitely return on investment, as Jay indicated. But we also have access, equity, relevance, right? So if we just threw out those words, we all know that there's a lot out there, but some of it just comes with exposure. How does somebody in poverty make a transition to higher ed? It's about exposure. And they won't get exposure if they don't have access. And if they have access, but the access is curtailed to who you know, then it means instantly they're limited uh, in terms of what they could can um, that can be made available to them. But when we talk about relevance, which is where I think I want the conversation to, to go, is that it must meet the need for the state, the country, the economic infrastructure, in addition to that individual and their families. So if it costs too much and they still graduate without a degree that they can't get a job in, that's not good investment. Uh, and the reverse is true. If you graduate in something that you really, really like, but you don't have the competences to do the job, then you won't be hired either. So there has to be a good balance. And I think it's centered on relevance. Granted, you can go out and get a YouTube university degree and you can YouTube the whole process through it, but you miss the exposure, you miss the mentorship, you miss the network, you miss the value add that comes from an instructor saying, yes, this is the content, this comes from the textbook, but when you put these two things together, this is what occurs. And you cannot replace that by simply YouTubing everything online. Well, a, a, amen to amen to that. Yeah. And I, I see Jay, I see Jay uh, giving the thumbs up sign. It, you know, it occurred to me after I asked that question that it might be helpful for the audience to do just a little bit of a backup here and kind of give some larger context. So, uh, for example, Jay, you talked a lot about the lack of confidence, the lack of faith in institutions. And in, in your talk back in October at the at the DGI summit, um, you talked about kind of the perception problem that higher education has um carolyn you you talked about similar themes uh in your talk you mentioned this uh, phenomenon of a sans demic where people are kind of just turning off or opting out of things uh, higher education being one of them um so for folks who aren't steeped in this i mean what are some of those perceptions uh that people have of higher education that you know the lack of confidence or the the lack of faith um, that we're that we're seeing now that are contributing to a lot of these issues. Well, you know, there's a lot that goes into this, and and um, you know, I think it starts with the kind of the the prototypical 
perception of the ivory tower and uh, people having a hard time understanding that a professor that teaches two or three classes, that's all they do for their for their job. Um, hard to explain other facets of the job. Um, I think there's a, a, a really strong media element to this, too. You know, the, the notion of the barista with one hundred and ten thousand dollars of student loan debt uh, that that has been that story has been told a number of times. Now, there's no doubt. You know, I think it's pretty clear that that the 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 college degree still uh, provides a really significant lifetime earnings benefit. Now, it is coming down some, and I think people point to that as college is losing its relevance. I think there's this other notion, and Carolyn alluded to this in her previous response, is there's way more competition that there, than there's ever been for, let's call them just-in-time skills, uh, a Google certificate, a Salesforce certificate, uh, Microsoft, uh, LinkedIn Learning. All of those things actually are really, really well done learning activities, but they're just snippets of, of a bigger picture that someone I think that has a college degree will receive in the four-year setting. You know, I think the other, the other part of this is uh, one of the things we're still learning how to do is help students see the connections in their learning work through a curriculum uh, and grow and see how they're growing with respect to different facets that are going to be important in the workplace. Uh, in particular, that's one of the things I get pretty excited about when we start talking about uh, the Digital Gardener Initiative. I don't want to jump ahead, but uh, the notion of digital skills and how they can be uh, gained in a wide variety of academic settings is really exciting to me. And then pulling that together is is particularly exciting. So, you know, what do you think are those are those skills? I mean, you know, when we when we say that the skills that people are are, are gaining from a, from a higher education experience, uh, you know, we, we don't necessarily do a good job of sort of disaggregating it and explaining it to students. But but let's sort of before we sort of get into that discussion, what what do you see as the sort of primary digital skills uh, that 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 we we really um, need to, if not emphasize more, um, at least sort of surface uh, more and, and show uh, show that, that students are getting that through their experiences. If I were to, to jump in and respond, I think it has to do with an example that demonstrates the process. So you go to a restaurant and your waiter is willing to guide you with whatever it is that you've ordered, right? That's a very simplistic, a one plus one, I order X, I get X, and I enjoy X, and then I leave. But when it comes to higher ed, it's not necessarily just preparing the student to be able to prepare or identify the meal and then give that to you and for you to consume. You're preparing that individual for citizenry as a whole. So you want to give them knowledge that they can go and take a driver's test and pass it and know what to do. You have somebody who, when they're driving, can make quick actions that are informed. You want to be able to have somebody that can read and write and understand what they're watching on YouTube that you also want that individual to distill that information, determine what's relevant. You can Google and have a hundred videos on the same topic. How do you sift through that information using appropriate digital literacy to determine this one comes from a good source, this one not so much, this one I will not do to my car because it'll blow it up, right? So whatever it is that you do, there has to be that filter. So when we talk about competences from higher ed, 
It's those competences that come from grappling with the content, not just by learning the content. So as they work as teams, this is what the employers want, right? That you're able to work as a team. You can determine your strengths and your weaknesses or limitations. You know basic critical thinking. You know how to put one and one together and still create three from that innovation that comes from your team. And the other piece of it that comes that you don't see anywhere else on YouTube is you get a qualified mentor in your instructor. The instructor has been there. They have the knowledge and the content. Even though you're a phenomenal student, they could say, Adam, you are great at this. But if you put this business degree with your digital literacy and this higher ed stuff, you could be in this space. So they grow you, they groom you. And I think that's some of the pieces that we bring from higher ed that you cannot replicate anywhere else. We can look back to instructors who've been mentors to us, what, 10, 20, 30, 40 years into our lives. And those are still the individuals that write letters of recommendation and help to propel us to the next level. So critical thinking, digital literacy, exposure, networking, team building, organization, uh, skill writing, presentation skills, debate skills. There's a lot of skills that come from just being a part of higher ed. Yeah, and I think I agree with everything Carolyn said. And, and kind of, to me, one of the really key skills that a lot of people are projecting around digital, uh, not just the literacy is incredibly important today, incredibly important to be able to distill down what's, you know, what's what's actually factual and where's the data behind some of the arguments being made. But um, I, I think just the notion of, uh, I don't know, maybe it's digital resource, resourcefulness. I mean, we have so many tools out there and uh, in, in helping students become curious about how to use them. Uh, and that applies to data sets. Uh, I'm a bit biased here because my first job out of grad school I got because I more or less could visualize data using Excel. Right, that's a long time ago and Excel it was a very powerful tool, but I find it really interesting that Excel today is still very relevant and sits at the core of a lot of data analysis that happens today uh, and, and provides a wonderful tool. And, and so that's just like one kind of skill and Excel is really powerful and you could teach it, you do, we do. You can teach a whole course on Excel, but it's not just the use of Excel, it's, it's thinking about what it does. It's the management of data. It's making sure that, that you know, you can't just, it's not as simple as having a data set and running some analysis. There's assumptions under the analysis, there's cleaning the data, there's all sorts of different questions that have to be asked before you can be confident what that analysis will spit out. And then it's the visualization piece. I'm just choosing two, two pieces uh, to your question. The visualization piece today, there's so many wonderful tools to do that. And it is such a core piece of what we do across so many different fields that, you know, those are two examples of where we're always going to have new ways to do it. So I think this curiosity and instilling in, in, in students, helping them see that they can learn and grow as the tools grow, that's really important too. Do, do you think higher education in general or IU in particular, do we do a good job of, of you know, Jay, you, you know, you and Carolyn both talked about sort of, I think, uh, alluded to being able to prepare students to continuously learn, right? It's about lifelong learning. Um, do you think that that we do a good job in higher ed of saying that the value of higher ed isn't just for these four years or these two years, you know, that you might go get a graduate degree, but that it really is about sort of this 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 long term 
relationship and helping you sort of grow over the course of your whole lifetime and your whole career? I think that requires the distilling of the word or the the verb value, depending upon how you want to use it. Because value for most people seem to be tied to money and the tuition costs. And I think what Jay and I are describing is that a higher ed, uh, the value of higher ed has more to do with the lifelong learning that occurs and the ability to continue to lifelong learn because of the skills that you've acquired in higher ed. So you hear uh, ACRO and several other organizations are distilling the process and they go, here's the tuition, this is what's advertised, this is the sticker price. But then students are hit with transportation fees, housing and room and board fees, uh, computer fees, uh, all these other service fees that are added. But what we're seeing is an unpacking of the responsibility-centered management structure, right? So in the past, we believe that it was largely academics, and that's why the curriculum belongs to the faculty, and that's why most of the resources go in that direction. What we see now is that students are moving, and they're having a new demand, and they want more experiences. The formula did not have a lot of dollars in experiences. So now you see the cost going up in higher ed because services are... are, uh, there are more services that are required. There are more uh, sheer technology that's being required. And those funds are not hidden in a, in a pot somewhere. They have, <laughs> we have to find a way to cover them. And so you see this sort of, um, what would you call it? Like a scale, a tipping off the scale in the process to try to figure out where should we invest money and how does this impact the cost for the student? So you're right. It has a lot to do with the ROI, but it also has to do with where we want education to go. Right now, when you heard in, in the session, internationally, we are losing our place in, in, in innovation. Germany and many of these other places are leading. And they're leading because they have looked differently at innovation and value of learning versus just looking at the cost of education. And those are some of the things that I think we also need to be grappling with. Jay? Yeah, I agree. I, I think that we have the foundation in, in, the, in the notion that we've had to do link up and map uh, what happens in our classes to learning outcomes, usually pro program learning outcomes. I think the step we have to take now is to articulate those learning outcomes in language that outside that parents understand and that students understand and that employers understand. Because I think too much we get caught in our, our world, which is good and important, but I think to me, a, a piece of this is really the, how we communicate about what students are doing and what they're learning. And then the second piece I think we, we, we have an opportunity around is how do we link these things together? So what happens in that really cool gen ed class? And I could tell you stories about the really cool things I know happen in gen ed classes. How do you link that to something that happens in the major and help the students see that really that experience builds on this experience? Agreed, 100%. I think it was one of the conversations I was having with a colleague a, a while back. Um, there was an evaluation when they were getting ready to, to expand into math and English and do some more studies. And they recognized a large number of students were failing math and English in the high school level, right? And nobody paid much attention to it other than to acknowledge it. But for higher ed, imagine if we paid attention to the fact that math and English was a concern. And those students are now coming to us in higher ed, needing remedial education. 
right? And, and not connecting those dots. So as a result of that, you're right, Jay, we end up then having students skip some of those remedial processes that would have been covered in an intro class or an orientation class or those basic gen ed courses, not recognizing that they would have been integral to the student success, particularly when you look at retention and them finishing. I think the other piece that we've also paid attention to is beyond the student loan debt has a lot to do with um, financial aid and financial aid eligibility, uh, which when we talk about PAL, there's a lot of conversations around second chance PAL and, and, and that grouping. And I think it's important that we pay attention to that because when uh, society at large talk about being unable or the cost of higher ed going up, they're leveraging what they believe they should get in financial aid with what they would be able to pay. So when those don't, when those individuals don't get as much resources, then there's a pinch that occurs and they want some cushion from that pinch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And since you brought up students that are entering higher ed, uh, maybe from a low income background, um, you know, those students often, they don't have the sometimes the same support structure that a student coming from uh, more privileged might. Uh, they might not have parents that have been to, been to college and know that a bump in the road is a bump in the road. And part of being in college is failing. Not necessarily failing a class, but that happens too. And you can still succeed in the long term. So when they hit that bump in the road, it's how, does, how, do, how do universities show them and put their arms around them and say, hey, no, you're okay. And, and by the way, isn't this cool thing you're learning? Isn't that, isn't that something you, you, know, you, know, you might want to uh, take and run with? Uh, I think the relevance piece that you mentioned earlier, Carolyn, I think that's so incredibly important, particularly for our students that are coming from uh, lower socioeconomic groups, sometimes underrepresented minorities, because it gives them a taste and a view of what they can do with this college degree. You, you yeah. know, oh, go ahead, Carolyn. I, I was agreeing because I think it's in the doing that they they look for that support. They know the content, they know the learning because that's what they've done in in you know middle school and high school and all that stuff. But they want to understand the doing, mm-hmm. and they connect with each other at that time yes. too. And so there you can build a belonging when you have these uh, learning experiences that are seminal and meaningful. The students, uh, you know, it can be such just one of them can be such an enormous game changer yes. for any student, um, irrespective of background. And, and Gallup does a lot of research on this. And, you know, even having just say they have one, at least one person that took an interest in them individually, uh, it makes a huge difference in their, actually their, their happiness with their career, yeah. uh, let alone graduating from college. Uh, and to me, faculty members or anybody sponsoring some sort of uh, really kind of uh, more hands-on, more engaged learning that might use, say, a digital skill, uh, it, it's a perfect platform to facilitate that sort of connection. Agreed. In fact, I think I was um, I was talking, I always have a bunch of conversations, so I'm sorry if all of them are, are colliding today, but, but one of them had to do with uh, students and their learning. And what if university is just a small piece? In addition to getting congratulations, you're welcome to come to IU and explore this degree. In addition to that, there's a one pager that just says, here's the resource as a what if. What if you get your first F? Here's what you do. If what if you get your first C? Here's, you know, just those small incentives would be able to change how students experience higher ed and the support. Well, it, it normalizes 
the 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 process, right? You know, I, I was talking to someone earlier today about just um, you know, when you're presenting to something to someone, you know, the difference between saying, "Do you have? Uh, does anybody have any questions?" Which often the answer is no. Uh, to what questions do you have, right? Because it's that that change in language, albeit minor, really changes what the expectation is. Uh, and, and, and can normalize the, the, the notion of, well, I, I do have questions or, or normalize the notion of, well, I'm going to learn from, from this failure. And I think that's a really, really great point. Agreed. And normalizing is very important for all individuals. So even that, uh, that person that comes from other family members having a degree, they struggle with being me in that space and not comparing myself to all the others. So they also want to know rather than just assuming. So yeah, it, it opens up the entire cadre. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that, that you, you've both touched on um, is, you know, is experiences and building these experiences and, you know, for students to, to be able to make the connections, right? Uh, between the experiences and what they're learning in the classroom, between the, the different things that they're learning in different classrooms, um, and, and a lot of that is to sort of also, you know, the the uh, the implicit sort of value of, of of higher education. When people talk about the experience, that's really what they're talking about. When when students, you know, in the past, often from sort of maybe privileged backgrounds, could figure out ways to connect these things together. That's where really the the, the value comes. And um, and we're, we're needing to be sort of more explicit about about how how we make those connections or help students make the connections. My question for you related to that is is are we structured to be able to do that, right? So, uh, you know, we are so focused around sort of disciplinary, you know, th- I mean, you mentioned, Jay, earlier, you know, people look at us as the ivory towers, right? It's not – even within, <laughs> you know, it's like these individual towers, right, that don't talk to one another and don't sort of connect experiences. We kind of leave that to the student and, you know – and, and so are, 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 is higher education in general, and in IU in particular, are we structured to be able to, um, to, to, to do that and do that well? And, and if not, sort of what, what, what do we need to do to change? It's a tough question. It, it's, it's marred with a lot of layers. Uh, and so I by no means profess to have the answer. But I, I know that the structures we have are the structures we have built. So if there needs to be any change or or flexibility in in it, I think we all can do that because our audience, our customers are asking for something different. Uh, And that's what we've done with the different types of innovations like the digital gardener, like the badging, like the real record and all the things that we keep exploring, even XML and all these other opportunities in terms of how students will be able to get access to to their transcript. I think it speaks to the fact that if we want to remain off value, then we must be able to be malleable in the structures that we have built. You saw that during the pandemic, we pivoted very quickly to online and to hybrid and to offering, uh, mailing out kits to do chemistry and mailing them back for faculty members to assess. The opportunity is there, and I think it just needs to be leveraged to ensure that students have the experience. If you talk to any college student or any uh, prospecting student, they will tell you very quickly, I'm excited to go to IU because of 
the basketball, because of the games, because of regatta, because of all of these things. Those are the experiences they're telling you they want to have. They just so happen to be studying math or English or, or, uh, or, or uh, chemistry or something else. So they use that as a pivot point to get their experiences and build their network of friends who will be lifelong learners with them. So I think if we focus on where we need to go, we should be able to get some good inroads. Jay? You know, the question to me is really not any different than a large organization or company anywhere. Um, Silos occur, silos exist. And uh, one of the challenges in any of these sorts of organizations is to get people to work across their individual silo. Um, And to me, that's very possible and already happens in places. but I think the the exciting part of this is is having common language around some of these, some people call them essential human skills moving forward, of which digital literacy and fluency would be one. It's having the, this very clear focus on what we call important. Uh, Carolyn, I think about, you know, the profiles of learning at IUPUI, uh, which is, a, I think, a really good step in that direction, which articulates four overarching learning outcomes that every, or essentially profiles, not, not even learning outcomes, but profiles that we want our students to develop at IUPUI. A communicator, problem solver, innovator, and community contributor. And within that, there's four, and to me, that is, that's going in this direction. So it doesn't matter what class you take, you can align something up to those profiles. And, and so I think, and that was built on work that's out there. The work is there. I think it's that the challenge is pulling it together and having this common language and, and doing the work across so many different uh, backgrounds and interests. And, and I mean, the people that are teaching the classes to, to help them see this entire student experience. I mean, what really needs to happen is to, 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 to really watch that student journey and, 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 and see you know, where they're making connections or not, and, and where they're uh, having that uh, experience that they want to talk to their, their friends about or their family members about. Uh, so that, is, that, that to me is, is kind of at the, at the crux of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we have to pay attention to online and the next generation as to where we go with higher ed. Because it's not the the pendulum swing to where everything is online, because then there's going to be almost like what happened in the pandemic. Some people enjoyed working from home and others like, look, I need to go back to the office. I need my own space. I need my own headspace to think through some of these. And that's okay. And I think with this pendulum swing that's occurring with online, we're getting to a lot of what Jay's talking about, really unpacking the structure. Because if you think of it, you have a skeleton. That's what higher ed is in terms of what we all know it to be. But there's nothing wrong in changing the dress for the season. And if it's cold, we could put on a jacket and and make sure that we could weather the storm, right? And I think that's the creativity and the innovation that we want. And we see that in the Higher Ed Act uh, of 1965. It was a structure. It says this is what it could look like. But over time, we recognize, oh, we need to pay attention to discrimination. We need to pay attention to to Title IX funding. We we need to do all of these things. So we've been adding on accessories to to that that skeleton of what's there. And I think there's no difference uh, coming in the next 10, 15 years about what higher ed is. The structure will still be to educate in learning, skill development, and relevance for the economy. 
But at the same time, we will iterate and change how that's delivered, which will include a lot of digital skills and a lot of a lot of digital learning opportunities. Yeah, that's where the you know I, you didn't ask me to talk about digital gardener, but I, I would highlight that's where I think it gets really exciting. Is is if we start to have this catch fire, which it seems to already be doing with 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 faculty being really engaged in this initial cohort of of of, uh, of faculty fellows, and and you know the the impact that even those thirty five faculty are, are having uh, by clearly articulating what their students say, this is a pretty important skill that you can actually take anywhere. Uh, to me, that's just so incredibly exciting. And if they go tell their colleagues and they get other colleagues involved, uh, you know, digital, I have no doubt that this digital, the notion of digital fluency, digital literacy will be important for a long, long time. We'll have significant staying power, just like persuade, communication, uh, broadly defined, uh, where we're really at the truest sense of communication and that we're, we're, saying something or presenting something and someone else is actually receiving it, uh, which today is harder than ever. Agreed. If I may, just the, the joke that sort of popped into my head has a lot to do with most, if not everything that we're now using in our homes has some sort of Wi-Fi, Bluetooth option, right? And just being able to use that. And you see some parents calling the younger kids, come help me figure out how to use this remote or how to turn this on. So you see a relevance in everyday process, but then you also see some of these same students who are so tech savvy, unable to read the manual to open or to put together an Ikea furniture or to do something else, right? So it's the expectation that no matter what, there'll have to be a sort of marriage in the process to ensure that we can all move forward together. That's an excellent note for us to kind of wrap wrap up on. I, I do want to ask very quickly, one final question that I think looks to the future, um, as did your previous responses. Uh, Carolyn, at the summit, you talked about future proofing programs as well as people as being part of what the university does. I think going back to our earlier conversation about the perception of the university and kind of the value that we offer, I think for a, for a long, long time, I mean, for, for, for the last 50 years, if not longer, I think for most Americans, that value proposition was that a college degree, to a certain extent, provided kind of a recession proof uh, against, you know, sort of falling out of the middle class, right? So there was this idea, and I think largely it was a true one. It was one that we made good on that if you got a college degree, you were going to be solidly middle class for the rest of your life. And, and that was a really attractive value proposition for a lot of Americans. It seems like part of what we've discussed today is that we're losing that to a certain extent. And I wonder, coming back to this question of looking ahead, how do we, and perhaps specifically, how do we leverage digital literacy and digital fluency, as Jay put it, moving forward to perhaps future-proof or create a new kind of value proposition with the American people? Excellent question. I think it's a good one for us to go out on, and I know Jay's going to weigh in. I think the future proof has to do with your audience. And, and if we do not pay attention to what our audience want, we will end up building things that they do not want to consume. And we have, and you've heard me say, we have a Googling culture. 
So if we need to find something, though you know it's in the textbook, though you know the teacher covered it, if you could Google it and find the answer quickly, many students are going to do that. For adults especially, we are used to the Google culture as well as the Amazon culture. We go and we look for something. It gives us the comparison of how everybody else has thought about it, whether or not they thought it was a good review or a bad review, how much it costs, how many other people are charging that same amount or where you can get it cheaper. If we don't make a lot of those types of uh, information available up front for our students because they're experiencing it elsewhere, they're going to choose something else. And I think that's where the future proofing comes in. It doesn't necessarily have a lot to change in terms of the learning. Of course, we'll iterate and we'll make sure that we bring that up to speed. But individuals want to have a say in why or how they choose what they're consuming when it comes to higher ed. And I think that's the perception that if we can do a really good job at being transparent and not saying, oh, the sticker price for tuition is $9,000, but oops, there's a fee for this and a fee for this. And oops, we don't accept all of your credit. And oh, by the way, you have to then come and pay for this lab. That's an additional cost. And I think it's in all of those oops that people end up having some sense of rubbed tension or friction uh, with the process and realize this isn't for me because I didn't calculate for that extra $10,000 that this experience is going to cost me. Being upfront and transparent then would be my next or my best uh, solution for future proofing. Jay? Yeah, wow, that's a tough question. Um, I, I do think there's enough commentary with some data to back it up, to identify core uh, human skills, if whatever whatever we want to term those skills, those broad-based skills, they're going to be adaptability and flexibility is going to be related to continuous learning. So I think still at the core of this is how do we help students really early in their college careers? Because, you know, that first year is so pivotal. How do we help students see the agency they have in learning? And how do we help students have this this at least one, if not more, learning experience that says, wow, okay, this is why I came to college. And I can immediately see this translating to when I leave college. And this is important because Carolyn mentioned our constituents. And if we think about parents and family members as stakeholders, you know, I had a colleague that, that several years ago said, students these days have a lot of pressure on their shoulders too. They have to go home at Thanksgiving of their first year and be able to tell their parents and, the, and friends and family what they're studying and why they're studying it. So I think this, in the same vein, if we can turn this around and students don't go home, not that they do, but a student goes home and talks positively about several learning experiences they had and how it immediately connects up to what they might want to do. Uh, and that's where, again, I think these essential human skills come in because that can lead to multiple paths. I think that's to me, in my mind, that's one of the goals is how it, it particularly in the first year experience, and it can be curricular or co-curricular. Uh, I think we need to think really broadly about this. Shoot, we could talk for days, but I, I'd love to think about students that are working and have to work to pay for part of their school or all of their school. How do we grab that and do something with that too? Because so often I've had conversations with students where they've actually gone through a training program for restaurant X or retail operation B or some overnight job C that have skills that relate to the things we've just been talking about. 
but no one's really helping them see that relevance more or less, if that makes sense. Well, well, thank you both. And, you know, Jay mentioned that we could talk for days, so we certainly we can. <laughs> I have so many other thoughts, but yes, we can. Well, well, we hope to uh, to invite you back uh, on the podcast uh, for, for uh, you know, maybe not a days long, you know, podcast, but, you know, a, a series, a, a series of them that might over time maybe add up to a day, right? <laughs> but anyway. kudos to, to you and, and Paul as well for thinking about this and making sure that the conversation is happening broadly. I think that's where the impact's going to be made. So kudos. Well, yeah, well, let's let's keep let's keep spreading the word and and the linkage back to everything that's going on with uh, the Digital Gardener program too. Well, well, we hope it continues to grow in the garden. You know, spreads and you know we t- we take out more acreage. I can go on and on and on. But anyway, thank you both for for joining us uh, today. We really appreciate it, uh, and thank you to our listeners uh, for listening. Uh, now you can get the podcast on wherever you get your podcasts. So uh, Google and Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and and all of these different. Uh, Anchor places. literally everywhere. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, you know, and, and if you want, uh, just go up to Paul uh, at IU Kokomo, and he'll just play it for you on his yeah. phone right I in front walk, of you. So, I just walk around with a boombox playing it all that, the time. That's correct. Yes, yes. It, it's it's the <laughs> mid it's the mid nineteen eighties right now. Uh, anyway, um, so thank you, thank you both uh, again. Uh, you can always get uh, more information about the Digital Gardener Initiative by going to go.iu.edu/dgi. And if you have any uh, questions or suggestions uh, for future shows, feel free to drop us a line at dgi@iu.edu. Again, Carolyn and Jay, thank you so much for joining us, uh, and we hope to have you back soon. A distinct pleasure. Take care. Thanks very much. Really appreciate it.